Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the Sideline, a podcast for coaches and aspiring coaches, where we share the best practices of coaching, interview with coaches, and experts in the field of coach education. Here's your host, Vin Blaine. Welcome to another episode of On the Sideline. I'm your host, Vin Blaine. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Carrington, the author of Blowing the Whistle, The Psychology of Football Refereeing. This book was written through research with a multitude of views from the pitch, the media, academic studies, and the referees themselves. I definitely can't wait to discuss this. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for taking the time out to join me on the sideline. Hi, Vin. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. I was look, I've, been, I've been waiting for this discussion with bated breath, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you know, refereeing has to be one of the most controversial areas of the game. I came across your book, Blowing the Whistle, The Psychology of Football Refereeing. It, That's right. it grabbed my attention right away, Stuart, I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, refereeing has always been uh, a controversial part of the game. It is a situation where the home team says they are bad cause, the visiting team says they are good cause, and the same visiting team go to another game and then it turns around on them. You know, so I think it's a discussion I want to have with you about why the idea of writing the book. And then there are, sure. there are certain questions that are being asked in the book. But before you move on, I just want to make some statements that I see in the preamble of your book so we can set the tone for the conversation. Okay. Right? I, it says here, the football referee is charged with controlling the players and enforcing the laws of the most popular and passionate game on the planet. One, that's check. That's check. They are often alone yeah. and always outnumbered. Check. Then they play their trade in a competitive, with competitive athletes and partisan crowds. And those crows that I just said sway judgments in there. Want the referee to sway judge in their favor. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, we are, there are a lot of questions and many questions that I've seen you, namely, set out in your in, in the preamble. And, and I think that all those questions that are being asked by everyone, including myself, when I when I, as a as a coach, young coach, and a now coach, right? So I I don't want you to. Take your time and go through these areas and tell me. But first, you can tell me why you decided to write a book like this. Sure. I mean, I mean, that's the question I get asked the most, really. Why a book about referees? And I guess there's there's sort of two ways I can kind of take that. And, and the first one is that the fact that we have to ask that question, why referees, sort of has this inference involved in it where people just don't care. So that kind of really shocked me because if you think about a game of football, there's three people that can directly influence the result of that game. And that's the players and the coaches and the officials. Now I wouldn't advocate someone attributing 
uh, a victory or a loss to an official because I think there's so many variables and so many things can change within a 90-minute game of football that it'd kind of be foolish to identify one particular action or event. But that said, you know, an, an official can influence the game by the way that he or she chooses to uh, make decisions uh, throughout the game, uh, throughout the match. Now, so I think when people say, like, why referees? That just shows the neglect in this area. And as an academic, what I wanted to do was have a look at what research has actually been done on football officiating, because I know there's an abundance of academic work on coaching, and I know there's much work on players and skill development and skill acquisition and so forth. But really what, what's been done with officials, so that's the first sort of thing I wanted to do. And I guess I, all those questions that you just asked, and we can sort of take those questions, those questions such as are referees influenced by the crowd? Do referees favour the home side? Are referees arrogant? Do we really trust the referee? Questions like this. I'm a football fan, first and foremost, and I've grown up loving the game, much like everyone else has around the world. And I have those questions. And I just wanted to use those as research questions and answer them in a way that was supported with evidence. I didn't just kind of want it to be my opinion. And I've stayed clear of stating my opinion as much as possible. I wanted to be as objective as possible. But also, I wanted to make the book as, as, as accessible as possible. I wanted uh, a football fan to be able to pick it up and, and read the book and be able to kind of take on board the anecdotes and the scientific evidence to answer these questions that really involve the third team on a football pitch. Allow me to read the questions at the top so the listeners can understand where we're going with this. One of the questions, we start with one of the questions, is, are referees influenced okay. by the crowd? Mm -hmm. Do referees favour the home side? Do big name players and managers get treated differently? Are referees arrogant? Why would anyone, anyone want to be a referee? Most important one. Do we really mm -hmm. trust the referee? Do we neglect the mental health of referees? How can a referee prepare psychologically for a game? Those are all questions, uh, listeners, that are in the book Blowing the Whistle by Stuart Carrington. So, okay, Stuart, we have laid a foundation. Now, I think these questions, I think... Anyone listening, we'll, we'll put a tick beside these questions and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. These are the questions we have always wanted to, 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 to ask. And now we, we can so. get the answer. Yes. So uh, you can run with it now, Stuart. Okay. Each question in turn? No, you can speak. Don't, don't do whatever you want. But we want to just touch on some of the questions that you think might be important or the popular ones that are okay. being asked. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like you just mentioned, Vin, in the book, I sort of, I raised these questions because I wanted to, to exactly what you just said there. These are questions that everybody has asked at one point or another. Um, I mean, my starting point for the book was that first question, are referees influenced by the crowd? Um, I was fascinated with this testimony from elite level referees where they would, when once they'd sort of like retired, they would say, no, you know, you're never influenced by the crowd. It's like working with the radio on is, is, a, is a sort of analogy that's used a lot. So it's just background noise. And I didn't quite buy it, and I wanted to see if it was true. So I looked at lots and lots of studies and collated all that information and kind of put it together into a short answer. And if, and if you want the short answer, then it's yes, they are influenced by the crowd. Um, now, what's really interesting is this influence happens in one of three ways, or it could be all three ways. So the first influence, if you like, of the crowd is that it affects decision-making on discipline. 
So, for example, an away team player is much more likely to be penalised with a card than a home team player. And we know that this is attributable to noise made by the home fans because in studies done where they've had referees look at a football match and they mute the sound so that the referees are watching it in silence, the amount of fouls given are kind of equal. Obviously, it's going to change game game to game depending on the match, but they're kind of equal. There's no kind of significant difference. Whereas as soon as a referee is subject to crowd noise, the amount of fouls that go against the away team increases, i.e. the away team are penalised more. And not only that, if you look at the statistical probability of an away team player receiving a card, it's, it's about 0.5, so it means almost 50% which means you're almost like 50% more likely to receive a yellow or a red card just for being an away team player. And we know that that is attributable to crowd noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's particularly interesting is that studies can establish that, but they don't really offer many suggestions of like kind of why that is. Um, and so that's the area that I wanted to explore a little bit more and may look at other areas of home crowd bias. So for example, one of the... Uh, um, explanations for home crowd bias, if you like, is that a referee may want to be perceived as impartial. So that means that he or she wants the home crowd to go away thinking the referee was good or at least not talking about them. So referees will often state that they want to uh, keep their name out of the papers or not be criticised by the managers and the players after the game. And so, one, that could lead to them penalising the away team a little bit more. So they might not even know they're doing it, but they're doing it out of this kind of subconscious bias to be seen favourably by the by the crowd that are present. And obviously, with a home team, home stadium, that's going to favour one team more, right? And the other way it can influence it is on, like, opportunity. So I call it in the book the influence on opportunity. So if a home... A team is losing by a margin of one goal, so one nil down, two one down, three two down, something like that. Then the referee is significantly more likely to play more added time, more injury time, than if they are winning or losing by a larger difference, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So I present in the book like these sort of anecdotes by by managers such as Arsene Wenger, for example, who who are saying that if their team's three nil down, the officials tend to play a very low amount of injury time, and, and it. And Wenger is saying, well, you know, there's been X amount of yellow cards, maybe some red cards, maybe some injuries. There's been three goals. Why aren't you playing more at a time? And the like, officials like, are kind like, of like, like blowing for, it off. Like, like. like Fergie time, huh? Exactly, yeah. So Fergie time, as I mentioned in the book, people are saying, like, why, why did Man United get so much time? You know, was that a real thing? And yeah, actually, we know that, that, that this phenomenon is very, very real. Home, home teams, if they're losing by a goal margin of one, i.e. they can level it up, Referees might play more, but what no one's really done is this explanation. So, yeah, the explanation I offer in the book is that, you know, one possible explanation is it's, it's kind of they want to be seen as impartial. So uh, like a psychologist call it social payoff. Mm-hmm. It can also influence decision making because so you're a coach. Now, when you see players playing really well and, you know, a player might execute a skill. Have you ever asked a player to describe how they do that skill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. It's... it's... From a coaching standpoint, and not, not, not really. I mean, it's, it's, it's something. Sometimes it's inherent. Exactly. Yeah. So they just do it, right? It's autonomous. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we know that the best, like, if a good coach is someone that can 
uh, create players to produce a skill, and that player doesn't even know how they're doing it. Exactly. They're just doing it without thinking. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. And, and, and uh, Stuart, I can I can attest to that in a sense because I took a top class player. Okay. Uh, I said top class. He played at the national, senior national level, and okay. he was in a coaching course that I was conducting, and we were talking about how to teach his youngsters how to pass. And although I, I asked him to pass the ball, he did it. But I asked him, show me the rudiments. Show me how you pass the ball. He couldn't do it. He never know he bent, he didn't know that he bent his knees. Sure. And he did. Yes, it's what, so I understand now the same thing you're going there about management, about the referees. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It's ex yeah. So you know, like, like you said, so in your case, you know, you're speaking to this elite player and you're trying to coach this elite player these skills. And, and actually, like, if, you, if you teach them or coach them very explicitly, sometimes that doesn't help. Um, I guess it's, you know, one thing I say to my students a lot is, is if you're trying to do something very simple that you've mastered, like make a cup of tea, mm -hmm. if you get them to commentate like or talk or tell you what they're doing while they're doing it, they end up doing it worse. It's yes. actually quite hard to do. <laughs> <That is true. laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, true. it's so true. Yeah. And, and I know that people listening to this now will go, right, I'm going to try that. You know, like, just don't do what <laughs> exactly you're Exactly true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, lots of burnt hands with cups of tea. But, um, it, it, it definitely like harms your performance. Now, if you imagine you're a referee, like you're, you're training to watch certain things or certain actions all the time. Now, you might think I'm going to make this decision, like kind of off your instinct. But then if you've got 40, 50, 60,000 people kind of appealing something, you start to second guess yourself. Mm -hmm. And the, the level of crowd noise influences it as well. So like the density of the crowd, so if the stadium is sold out, that has more effect on the referee. And, and I believe, and what I posit in the book, is that this happens because it affects our implicit, implicit decision-making. And we know from a coaching perspective, players perform better when they're not thinking about the skills. So you might coach someone like dual task skills, or you might coach someone to use like a keyword to stop them thinking about the skill. So they just execute it naturally. And referees kind of need the same. And they don't really have that kind of psychological support, if you like. Uh, and they're possible explanations for this home bias if you like um bias is a word that i tend not to use too much particularly when talking to referee groups because it suggests like a preordained or preempted kind of favoritism and i want to stress referees don't have that i've i've toured for want of a better word quite a lot with this book and spoken to many referee groups and the one thing that comes out repetitively is that referees never ever go into a game thinking i want you know the blue team to win or the red team to win that doesn't happen right they go out right. there thinking i want to perform the best because referees are kind of sports people in their own right with their own role and task to do mm -hmm. that said there's obviously influences like there are influences on players and what makes a player perform better or maybe worse on any given day referees have got lots of people trying to influence their decisions like I, I say in the preamble on the book yes um yes. you know howard webb said it best when he said um there are 22 people on the pitch that are yelling at you to try <laughs> to make you make a mistake yes and then they yell at you when you make one that is so true and referees i find that referees are very critical to their own performance you know 100 after the games they sometimes you know, I have a friend who is a referee, and I tell you that after the game, I don't think she sleeps at night. She listens and she critiques herself very, very hard. I mean, in, in part of the research for this book, I actually took the referees course here in England. Mm -hmm. And um, since then, I've done a fair number of games. And 
few months ago, I remember officiating a game and a player did a tackle that I I showed him a yellow card for. Mm-hmm. And I would say I, every other day I think about that tackle because I know I should have shown a red card for it. Right. Um, and then I start thinking, why didn't I show a red card? And you start to second guess yourself. Second guess yourself, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, with hindsight, you know, if I, I did, don't have the opportunity to watch it again, mm-hmm. um, Deep down, I think I made a mistake. And I'd imagine that the uh, coach from the opposite team might be thinking, oh, you know, the ref made a mistake there or bottled that decision or whatever sort of term he might want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'd, you know, it's it's one of these things where coming from a, an officiating point of view, there were there were sort of just reasons why I showed the yellow card. But one, it could have been an error. And my point or purpose of writing the book was to help referees, A, understand these influences, because I think critiquing and understanding and reflecting on your own performance is really important for improvement Mm -hmm. and then also i wanted to set out kind of strategies to help you develop now that doesn't mean that referees are going to be perfect and never make mistakes because players aren't perfect and never make mistakes and coaches aren't perfect and never make mistakes but hopefully with more understanding and research we can get there definitely now that we have gone we have gone through the home side and they're influenced by the crowd right this is one area I know that in the, in the English Premier League, mm-hmm. all the other clubs believe Fergie time is favoritism. It happens uh, when he's at home, mostly. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, 90% of the time when, when, when Fergie's uh, coaching and he, the extra time seems to be moved from three minutes to five minutes or six minutes. Yep. Yep. You know? And uh, so, likewise, big players, do you think that they, they are treated differently by referees? Uh, do, I, do I think players or coaches? Both. The big, the big name players, like a Messi or anyone that is, is, is in the limelight. Do you think the referees tend to treat them differently? I know that, I know before you move on, I know that we have, we have always said, and I think FIFA influenced that. They never said it in words, but protect the, 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 the player. Mm-hmm. He, is the, he, is the, he is the player, so you have to protect mm-hmm. him. So do you think it influences the referees' decisions? Um, so... Before I answer that question, just a very quick kind of caveat. The caveat would be that I do not believe that a referee has ever walked onto a pitch and thought, I'm going to look after Lionel Messi today or Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's ever happened. Right. That said, the answer to your question is yes, they're treated differently. Um, now, the reason I think they're treated differently, but I must stress there's no kind of empirical evidence to support that because it's really hard mm-hmm. to garner that or gather that evidence is because of certain psychological phenomenon that we know is true. So, for example, one area of sort of psychological interest might be something called idiosyncrasy credit. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I talk about in the book where humans tend to group people into in-groups and out-groups. So we see this all the time with football fans. So if you're a fan of Liverpool and you're debating with a Manchester United fan who the best captain is, Gerard or Roy Keane, um, then you're probably going to highlight your person's, your, your captain's uh, benefits and you're going to overemphasize your opponent's flaws, if you like. Right. Um, whereas right. the reality is they're both great captains and also both fallible human beings that kind of made mistakes or had, had limitations, mm-hmm. um, which is completely normal. In the book, I talk about the game uh, between England and Argentina mm-hmm. in uh, the 2000, sorry, 1998 World Cup, where Michael Owen dived mm-hmm. and won England a penalty. 
And when I say he dived, that's not my opinion. That's Owen himself saying, I dived, he never touched me. I wanted to win a penalty. And England, and, yeah, and it's just so true. You know, and I live in England, you know, so, and obviously I'm an England fan, and I cheered with everyone else when we got that penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these fans will, will say, yeah, you know, Owen's a hero and good for him. And, oh, no, that's just, that's just the game. And, oh, you know, the defender shouldn't have sucked his leg out and things like that. And then when... Simeone makes a meal of David Beckham's flick out with his kick right, and sort of right. falls on the floor and like, oh, ref, look at this. And the ref sends Beckham off. Well, that was horrible. You know, that shouldn't have been done. That was cheating and that wasn't in the spirit of the game. That's a great example of in-group, out-group. Now, referees might, uh, no, don't have an in-group or an out-group because they don't go thinking, I want England to win or they don't go out thinking, I want Argentina to win. Yes. However, what they may do is think this person has kind of credit in the bank. So that's what we call idiosyncrasy credit. So if you're a player and you're constantly moaning at the referee, you're constantly appealing, you're constantly trying to undermine what the referee does, you are probably going to be punished a little bit more or a little bit more readily. And there's testimony from referees in my book that state that. So one referee says, you know, this guy's always in my ear every game. I go out thinking I'm going to get him in the book early to shut him up. (laughs) Now, that's not the referee being kind of a cheat. So I don't want to kind of want to stress that it's they're a human being. And if you're criticizing someone, yeah, they're going to try and control you with that. Exactly. And likewise, you know, a player might, a referee might think, well, if this person is very honest player, if this person, you know, I don't believe that this person cheats or dives, then they're more likely to kind of reward them if they go, go down or, or, or I was just about to uh, step in there. Yeah, sure. Is, uh, the, my question, and try to remember your point you're making, because it, I think this, this, this comes in hand in hand with that question, maybe, is that uh, my question to you would be, do you think a player's reputation mm. influences the referee's decision yes. sometimes? Definitely. It does. So, yeah, definitely. So there's really good um, testimony and some research that I cite in the book. Um, where an author interviews uh, referees, elite level referees as well, illegal referees from, from Spain. Uh, he also referees uh, interviews Serie A referees from Italy as well as Premier League referees in England. And the Spanish referees and Italian referees will state quite explicitly as well that they do a lot of research, a lot of homework before games. And they will look at players that are aggressive and they will look at players that are um, maybe more forceful than others or that cheat more than others. And there was, you know, they state in the book, if this, if I know that, you know, number eight dives a lot, I'm less likely to award them a foul. doesn't mean they're not going to award them the foul. They'll go on what they see. But if in doubt, they're going to think, well, they probably went down a bit early. And they will also think if this player is particularly aggressive and someone goes down, well, they probably did hurt them. And therefore, I need to kind of control them. So. One bit of research that's quite interesting in the book is uh, looks at aggression and like you know player reputation. So there's one study looked at gave gave referees uh, a video of a game to watch, and with one group of referees, they just said, "Watch the video. You know, let me know when you would have given a foul, who for, who against, and if you would have shown a yellow or a red card for it, or just a free kick." And then with another group of referees, they said, "Watch this." Do the same thing. However, just so you know, the blue team are really aggressive and they've had a lot of disciplinary problems and they're constantly in trouble with the officials. And lo and behold, with that group, the blue team conceded more fouls and had more yellow and red cards in the game than when the referees weren't told about reputation. Yeah. So the bottom line is reputation yeah. counts. If you want to take, take away a message from that, 
you know, coaches, start telling your players to behave a little bit because it's not helping. Now, it's not to say, you know, don't appeal because we know that appeals might influence referee. But one, think about how you might appeal. And B, think about how you behave on the football pitch because it will influence referees. It will. Uh, so, okay, uh, that answers that for me because I, as I, I knew that managers and, uh, and the behavior, if you keep yeah. getting in, in the face of the referees all the time, yeah. as you say, they are humans and they'll remember. Yeah, absolutely. A really, yeah, a really nice sort of study that looked at kind of all these influences. They attributed a lot of referee decisions to something called social payoff. So if you have a really influential manager, so, you, I mean, you raised uh, Alex Ferguson up earlier on. Alex Ferguson is kind of, you know, he's one of the greatest managers of all time. So when he spoke to the press, people listened and people put value on his words. It's it's very likely, therefore, that referees do not want to be criticised by this person. He is a significant agent in the field or in the, in the game of football. And so criticism from Ferguson is certainly more uh, cutting and more uh, has more weight on it than criticism from somebody else. Right. And therefore, from a social payoff perspective, you know, people are kind of less likely to essentially want to annoy that person because they don't want people to listen. Now, again, that's not to say that referees went out going, well, I want Man United to win. It's just human nature that in those tight calls, that 50-50 decision becomes a 51-49 decision. I, I, I totally agree with that because, as I say, they are humans and if you treat them well. Yeah. Not that they're going to they're gonna make cause for you deliberately, but the chance of you... Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the chance of you getting a cause for you might be greater. As I say, and I like to use the 51-49. You didn't say 60-40. You, you get me? Yeah. Saying a 70-30, yeah. 60-40 would mean that the referee is definitely moving in that direction. But Correct. one of the things I, mean, like, I must tell you... Oh, you, you want to say something else towards that? No, no, no. Please go ahead. I uh, just wanted to add, add something on to this. But um, it, no, it's fine. Please go ahead. No, I was, I was saying to you that one of the things I've do, I did, I've done when I am in a coaching course... Because, you know, once referees um, come up in the course, then it's a, it's a, I have to stop the, the conversation because it would take three hours. It would take two days because everyone in the room has a problem or a situation where the referee thought the referee did something wrong. I shouldn't say something wrong, a, a bad call. I often do a demonstration with the coaches in the, in the classroom. I get a bottle. Okay. I get a bottle with a label. Mm -hmm. And I rest it on, in, the, in the middle of the, of, of, the, of the classroom, the table. And I ask the persons on the left to tell me what they are seeing on the label. Okay. I ask the person in the middle to tell me what they see. I ask the person on the right to tell me what they're seeing. And, I, and then I said, well, you guys, you are seeing something different from different angles. And that's the situation with the referee. The referee sees situations from different angles. You on the bench might see the, the, the foul, right? He, from his position, he never saw it. And the, and, the, and the assistant referees were blocked by a player that couldn't have seen it either. You know, so mm -hmm. I use that to kind of, sort of influence them to look at the um, responsibility that the, the referees have, you know, at, from their vantage point. Absolutely. And I, and I love the fact that you back up these questions and things with research. It's not just your, your opinion, really. Mm -hmm. Albeit, whatever you think is your, your, just your thoughts, but you have backed it up with research, and that's what I like. That's it. That's what I wanted to set out to do. I didn't want to write a book about referees and this is what I think of them. You know, it's, it, who cares? You know, we all have opinions. 
we've all been frustrated at refereeing decisions. And what I wanted to do was cut through that and, and kind of provide the evidence. I mean, go, that, that exercise you do about you know the bottle, it, it's so fascinating. I, one thing that I do when I speak to referee associations is I'll, I'll show some clips um, and some still pictures and think like, you know, who's giving a handball in this sense or who's giving a foul in that one? And then you show them a picture from another angle and they're like, oh my God, I'm completely wrong. And the referee is like, like you said uh, at the start of this uh, podcast, a referee is one person mm-hmm. and everyone on the pitch is going to see something different. And when referees became professional, a lot of the commentary around it was, okay, well, this is going to be better because they're going to be fitter. And if they're fitter, they're going to get into better positions and see things more. But the fact remains, and that's true, but the fact remains, they can only be in one position at any given time. Any given time. Yeah, so they're, they're only going to see things from their perspective. Another thing that's really hard to do is it's really hard to switch attention. So what I mean by that is, and I, and I highlight this in the book, that psychologists identify there's four types of attention. And players will use all four types and uh, throughout the game, and so will referees. So, for example, one type of attention is, is called narrow internal. And what this means is... It, and we all do it. This is when you might focus on yourself and on one thing. So if you're a player and you're about to take a penalty kick for maybe one or two seconds, you might just focus on your breathing or you might just focus on where you place the ball mm-hmm. or you might just focus on like kind of trying to calm down before you execute the skill. And we do that all the time. You know, think about a defender defending a corner. You might think to yourself, you know, I, I, I'm just going to take a breather here while the guy sets up the corner kick, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's narrow internal. And then there's all these different types of things, actually four in total. And referees need to do all those things. So when a referee makes a big decision, they might need a moment to kind of think, right, just calm down, forget that decision, right or wrong. I've made it now. I need to move on to the next one. They need to see things in incredible detail was the player's studs up, but they also need to see things with a lot of detail. So how fast was that player running when he or she made that tackle? Uh, did both feet come off the ground uh, with things like red cards for denying goal scoring opportunities? You know, was there a covering defender? How far from the goal was the player? Um, would the player was the player likely to have received the ball? Where was the tackle made? All these things mm-hmm. and switching from one type of attention of is really difficult. However, all these points and this goes back to the home advantage one, by the way, as well. And I think this is really key. Like players, the more they're coached and the better they're coached their ability improves and they become more used to and better equipped to deal with the demands of the higher game. Right Mm -hmm. now it's exactly the same for the referees. Right. So research done at low levels show that like you mentioned there, like, um, like home advantage might be kind of like 51, 49 Mm -hmm. or this decision with a big name player or big name manager is slightly more than, than that a very poor referee. So you know, I'm, I'm not a very great, a good referee. You know, I'm, I'm kind of starting out my journey um, over the last year or so. Um, if you were to put me in the World Cup final, I'm going to make a lot more mistakes than someone like Bourne Creepers, so an, an elite Dutch referee at the moment. Okay. Um, that, I'm just going to make more mistakes. Likewise, if you put me in the England team, I'm going to make a lot more mistakes than Harry Kane because I'm just not as good as those skills as that particular individual. I know, the mental pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And and the skills are the same. The types of attention are the same. Yeah. And, and it's strange how, you know, with players, you know, like, like I said, if you stick me in the England team, I'm not going to play very well. I'm certainly not going to play as well as the professional players. And yet with referees, we just expect them to kind of all be at the same level and all be superb and never make mistakes. 
Yeah, that's, that is true. They're, they're, that's, they don't care. The crowd doesn't care. The coaches don't care if they just started yesterday and coaching their first Correct. game. Yeah. They don't care. But one thing I've always said to players, though, and, and when, I co- when I'm lecturing and I'm talking about refereeing, and I point to those situations to, to, the, to the participants, I say to them that they must learn to know, study the referees, read yeah. the referees. What kind of calls that does he consistently make? Mm-hmm. Because there are referees you can you can slide with your with your studs up, and they probably won't call the, make the call. But if you if you come from behind and you just push the, a player from behind, they make a call consistently, mm-hmm. right? So and it goes for both sides, not just your not just the home team, right? So I'm saying you have to know players must read the type of calls that the referees constantly make. There are some calls that referees make. You have, you have referees from different countries that make certain calls. You have different, because of how their culture is in their country. I told a player of mine that there, there was an American referee in the game, and I said to her, do not slide tackle. Mm-hmm. Right? This particular lady is from this country. They don't accept, they don't like slide tackling. Mm-hmm. And the first tackle the young lady made was a slide tackle. She got a red card. Well, okay. You're absolutely right to do that. So think about like when you're coaching a player, you might say, well, one thing I used to say when I was coaching players would say, right, the first five minutes, I want you to know what foot, dominant foot your opponent is. So exactly. personally marking. Exactly. I want, yeah. Do they like to play first time? Do they like to run past you? Do they like to dribble? Like figure them out. Just just take five minutes to mm-hmm. figure them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't worry if you make a mistake, but like it's like playing poker, isn't it? You're like you get get a bit of information on your opponent first mm-hmm. and then start to play. And it's the same referees, like figure out like what that referee is calling. So referees will often say to their assistants, like, don't give any fouls for the first five or ten minutes right. unless it's really right. obvious. Yes. Because I want you to see what I'm giving today. Mm-hmm. And what I'm not. I mean, in the book, I talk about this difference in culture. And I think it's really important that people realize this. FIFA's aim is for consistency in officiating. The reason that's incredibly difficult is, one, they're human beings. Two, what they see changes from what everyone else sees because of natural differences in positioning and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then third of all, it's different because, like you, like you correctly identify, different cultures have got different interpretations of what is acceptable behavior and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Um so, for example, I talk about in the book, there's the, the England versus um, Columbia game in the last World Cup. England are awarded a penalty and all the Columbia players kind of surround the referee mm-hmm. and, you know, physically make the referee move away because they're kind of in his personal space. And in England, all the media were saying, you know, why isn't the referee kind of brandishing yellow cards now? And just saying, like, if you argue with me, I'm going to show you a yellow card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, referee, the head of referee development, a guy called Paul Rager, said um, that that particular official was right not to show yellow or red cards mm-hmm. to these protests because with certain South American nations, like it would only kind of fuel the fire. You're only going to aggravate them more. Yes, they yes. just want to. They just want to moan, and you just let them have a moan, and then it, the game can move on. And on the other hand, on, on the other hand, um, Stuart, I have known referees manage games by handing out yellow cards in the sense that if they recognize that the game is getting real physical, they will give yellow cards, hand out maybe three yellow cards quick, in quick succession. And that calms, oh. down, that calms down the players. They realize, hey, this man is not joking or this lady is not joking. 
right? So they, they, it brings back the game now to a level of, hey, you have to, you have to be more responsible because you're on your yellow card already. So I think, that's, I think on the, that's what referees, I don't know if they still do it, but I think that's what they do sometimes in special situations. I agree. And that's my personal approach. My personal approach is kind of a card should control behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and nine times out of 10, I find it successful. There are occasions where it's unproductive. Mm-hmm. What, what's strange is that different nations will have different approaches. So particularly in Britain, referees will talk about what's called the stepped approach. Mm-hmm. And it's something I discuss in the book. So the stepped approach is, I'm not saying that, you know, you can have a red card tackle and if it's your first one, you're not going to be shown a red. Right. What I mean is if it's kind of a gray area, a referee will be like, okay, so like Vin's made this tackle that I'm not particularly happy with, Mm -hmm. but it's the first one. It's not kind of a clear yellow or red card. I'll just talk to him. And then the second time, if you do it again, I might go, right, well, now I'm going to talk to you, but with your captain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll call your captain over and say, right, I've I've already spoken to Vin once. Can you tell him to calm down? Because if he does this again, I'm going to have to like take some cards out. And then hopefully that does the trick. And then if it doesn't, then I might show a yellow card. And, and the reason for that is to try to keep players on the pitch and to try to control the game. And for some players, that works really well. Mm-hmm. They actually kind of respect the fact that as an official, you've taken the time to speak to them, explain what you're doing. So again, this goes back to another aspect of psychology I discussed in the book called procedural justice, mm-hmm. where a referee might explain his or her decisions and say, you know, I'm... Um, I'm, I, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You don't have to agree with it, right? But I'm going to explain my view, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and then hopefully you just accept it. Whereas if referees are like, "No, go away. I'm not talking to you. Mm-hmm. Here's a yellow card. That's it." Sometimes play that only serves to aggravate players because they're like, "But why are you showing me a yellow card? Like, yes. I need to yes. understand." Yes, yes. And it might not help. You know, they can still disagree, but at least they know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so again, that, that, that's not going to help consistency and, and, and the differences in cultures kind of only perpetuate that a little bit. Um, I think that's minimizing because it's more of a global game now. But, well, um, I think that, uh, I think that if, if I must be critical in, a, in an area for young referees or even, well, let me use young referees, is the area of player management, especially in the Caribbean area, from my experience is that there's there, there's something there's no interplay there's no you know it's it's as if oh I'm I'm the referee I'm in charge of whatever I say you shut up and I find that that approach aggravates players and aggravates the situation more mm-hmm. do you, I I mean I've never I've been really fortunate uh, Vince I've I've coached in in Britain Australia uh, France and Italy and I've also coached teams from the Middle East mm-hmm. um I I haven't had the pleasure of coaching teams uh, from the Americas or, or the Caribbean mm-hmm. and I was going to ask what the kind of cultural perception of referees is over there? In different regions, Jamaica Jamaica has, I think, good referees that send kids to those areas. The smaller countries don't take refereeing as serious as they should. And, and uh, it's, it's like everywhere else, you know, people shouting at you. So to me, to me, it's just a matter of all these things that you're talking about it's exact situations with every, every any referees in any country yeah i think that's it, it's really strange because you know one thing that i wanted to do in the book as well was look at we can't just look at sort of human psychology by looking at an individual by themselves we have to look at the culture and we have to look at the history of the location where they're operating or where they're from um and and i mean the, the book i guess is generally focused on British and European football. 
um, when I talk about the perception of, of different nations towards referees. And the one thing that everyone has in common is that the referee is kind of there to be shot at um, and, and, and vilified. Now, there's what was different or what was interesting is that each nation had a different reason for that. So in Britain, for example, like historically, the referee wasn't needed. It, it, was, it was seen as kind of, well, the captains can sort it out themselves. Decisions, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it was seen as, and, and that sort of stems from this kind of private schoolboy, amateur Corinthian ideal, if you like. And then additionally, when the game became kind of very working class and professional teams started to be established, the referees tended to be, could be from kind of middle class professions, such as teaching. And therefore, it was kind of seen as this is just another example of the, uh, the, of the British class system trying to oppress the working class. Mm-hmm. So we don't like this person authority. Whereas in nations like Italy... Italy's a nation that's had such a, a rough ride in history with corruption from their leaders. Um, so dating back to dictators such as Mussolini or even looking back at kind of Roman emperors and dictators, that they don't really trust anyone in power. They just think anyone in power is there to kind of preserve their own needs and meet their own needs. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they, they see the referee as an extension of that. And, and everyone's kind of cynical and everyone is kind of has a price um, and therefore referees aren't liked in that particular nation there so i think when we look at how people treat referees we have to think one what's the effect on referees personally mm-hmm. and also on their performance and also we have to question ourselves like why, why do we really dislike them here is this because of something that happened ages ago and it's just been passed down and passed down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or is there a genuine reason and often when we actually sit back and think why am i abusing this person mm-hmm. you know yeah they might make a mistake but i mean in a game of football a, a referee makes on average 250 decisions per game Per game. So it's about one every, yeah, 250. So it's about oh. one every 12 seconds. Yeah. And there's no temporal bias there, Vin. So what we mean by that is you're not more likely to make more decisions in the first five minutes or the last 10 minutes. It, it You might make a glut in the first five minutes. You might have a little lull where there's not many decisions to be made. They can come at you from any place, any time. Mm-hmm. And out of those 250, 50 are objective. So the ball crossed the line or it didn't. The ball yeah. came off this player, or it didn't. Okay. That means 200 decisions per game. And some people say it's higher, by the way, but but about 200 decisions are subjective. So you're never going to have agreement mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's your opinion. And the laws of the game, the way the laws are worded, one thing I urge people to do at one point in the book is like, educate yourselves on the laws. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to players all the time, and they're like, why did you do that? And, and you explain it, and they're like, you know, the handball's a good one. They're like, oh, but it was ball to hand mm-hmm. or it was accidental. And it's like, but that doesn't matter. And the interpretation, like, the interpretation yeah. is important for um, for the non-referees and coaches, even coaches. I think I've always advocated for coaches to get their minds, wrap their minds around the laws of the game. Call the referee. Uh, what I normally do, you know, I tell you, I have, I have good relationship with the referees. And if I, yeah. I'm co- when I was coaching and I coach in a game, and I see a, a referee make a call that I might not um, like. I never, I never confront the referee. But I, I call the head of referees. I say, this is the situation. This is what happened in the game. Um, what do you think? And he might say to me, yes, Vin, they are right. Or, I, you know, what I'll do, I'll take a look at the replay to see and then get back to you. Because I am yeah. educating myself. And you, you're absolutely right to do so. I mean, I've, I've refereed games this season where I've had coaches shout at me for like, you know, 
oh, you know, they've picked up that goal kick in their own penalty box. Mm. And, and that law changed in the summer. You know, they, they, the laws evolve and the laws change all the time. Mm-hmm. The wording of laws change. So the wording of the handball, the handball was probably like the big one this year mm-hmm. where, um, you know, it changed from like intent doesn't matter, basically. So the like accidental, intentional handball, like it just doesn't matter. But from a refereeing point of view, like applying the laws when someone isn't kind of aware of the law is really difficult because you explain it to them. And sometimes they take it really well, and, and you're like, okay, like you got to be careful how you explain to them because you don't want to come across as kind of dogmatic, right? And and say like, this, you know, these, these are the laws. This is this is this is why I made that decision. And sometimes they take it really well, and sometimes they're just so rigid, saying, well, no, that's not the law, or that's not how the game should be played. So everyone wants consistency, but at the same time, everyone wants common sense. That's that's true. And All right, so that, that's really hard. Like, that's <laughs> from a, an efficient point of view. That's really really difficult. Yeah, man. All right, I I want to move on to one of the questions. That is, I know a lot of uh, spectators and coaches on a whole have this. Uh, this I this, think this, I know what you're gonna yeah, ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they they believe it in their mind, and it comes across because I want to hear your research uh, findings first, and then I will tell you why people perceive them that way. Are referees arrogant? So, right, the the short answer to this is it depends on the referee. So referees are human beings and they each have their own personality. And this isn't a cop-out, by the way. I'll get to kind of like the point of this in a moment. Um, So, yeah, it stands to reason that some of them may have qualities which other people perceive to be arrogant. The reason I'm not going to say, yes, referees are arrogant is because, one, personalities are dynamic so they can change so i'm sure that we have all acted in a way that might have been termed arrogant before mm. uh, you me everyone listening and everyone. there are times where we act really kindly and very nicely etc etc um to look at the research and try to answer this what i wanted to look at was what was what sort of personalities are referees reporting now in one sense you could say referees are arrogant so one really nice piece of research they looked at the qualities that officials believe they have. And then they asked them, do you believe you're better than your peers in this area? So, for example, one quality might be uh, the ability to make accurate judgments. And only 2% of referees asked said, there are others better than me in this area. So that means 98% of officials asked said, I'm the best at making accurate judgments. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like if you're a striker and then saying, like, are you the best finisher in the world? 98% of strikers mm. might say, yes, I'm the best finisher. And only 2% would say there are probably others better than me. But what's really interesting is those officials asked were like elite level officials. Mm-hmm. So now think about it like this. If you're a coach and you said to, you know, if you're, so if you're the, uh, the head coach of the Jamaican national team and you say to your, you know, you're, you're, making, you're number 10, do you think you are the best finisher in Jamaica? Do you want him to say yes, or do you want him to say no? I think there's lots of people better than me. I would want him to to say he's the best for mental exactly. for mental for his own mental preparation. Exactly, and it's the same for elite elite level referees. So there's a really nice psychological framework. It's actually the most popular framework that's cited in psychological research, and it's the theory of what's called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is the your ability or your perception of your uh, competence at a specific task. So for referees, it would be refereeing a football match. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean they think they're the best at everything, Mm -hmm. but they might believe they're very, very competent at this particular task. And one of those things is uh, 
verbal persuasion. One of the things that causes this is verbal persuasion. Another one of the things that do it is successful previous performance. And another one is vicarious performance. So basically, do you learn from others and do you think you can improve or uh, are more competent than others? And actually what the research shows is that referees do really believe in themselves and they do believe they're better than others. Um, now, only about 2% of referees think that others are better than them. And then 60% think that they're the best, which means that you've got maybe, you know, like 38%, give or take, that are kind of like, well, I don't think others are better than me, but I don't think I'm the best. Like, we're, we're all kind of <laughs> a very good high level. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer this question, my answer of are referees arrogant is, well, referees certainly believe in themselves. Referees certainly believe that they are very competent at the task. So it can, it, it this, can come across as being arrogant to some people. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Because if you're, you know, if, if you if you believe you're competent at the task and if you believe that your decision is the right one, yes, other people may interpret this as arrogant. The two points I raise in the book is one, you might actually need this to perform well. Like you just said, you'd want your player to believe in themselves and to believe in their own abilities. So why shouldn't we expect referees to believe in themselves and to believe in their own abilities? When we talk about referees, when we talk about referees, yeah. uh, Stuart, are we grouping? Because when you talk about referees, we leave out the ARs. So I want to know if that research included in the mental capacity and the same arrogance and the same trust. Do we, do we lump ARs in the same group as referees? Yes, because we when do. we talk about referees, we talk about someone in the middle. We always, yeah. our mind goes to the middle. Assistant referees is the right name for them because they make some important calls sometimes. Although they, they had this thing about, you know, you're there to assist, not, to, not insist. Which is Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And referees will say that often yeah. as well, which maybe might show a bit of arrogance on their part. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, okay, so okay. Here's, here's a really interesting piece of research for you then, Vint. Right, so yes. um, people think, oh, officiating is officiating. Mm. It's role-specific. Okay. If you... Let me let me let me link together two bits of research to answer this question about are referees arrogant? Mm -hmm. When players, and I mean professional players, not kind of you know Sunday league players, when professional players are asked to watch a video of a game and to make decisions, they get about fifty percent of decisions correct. Okay, when elite level referees watch that same game, they make around eighty percent of those decisions correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, so imagine a player. Or imagine how a player might react if a referee were only got one in two decisions right. right. They're not going to be very happy. Mm -mm. So we know that referees are better at officiating than players, which supports this argument that it's a role-specific skill. Mm -hmm. Let's take this argument further. Another piece of research showed, and this is fascinating to me, if we looked, let's, let's look at the difference between referees and assistant referees. This other piece of research said, right, we want assistant referees to referee the game. And then we're going to see how many decisions they make right. And their performance was a lot worse than referees. Mm. A lot worse. And, it could, and, and it, could be, it, could be, it could be reversed though, right? Correct. It, it is mm. reversed, yeah. Mm. So referees are awful assistants. They get mm. lots and lots of offside decisions wrong. Right. Lots and lots. <laughs> it's just really bad, right? So when yeah. we say, oh, are they arrogant? It's like, well, they believe they can do it. Yes. One, because you need that belief. Yes. Two, if you're going to persist at something, you kind of need to think you're good at it. So, you know, I don't play the guitar. And one of the reasons I don't play the guitar is because, one, I'm not really interested in learning. And two, I think I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. why would I do it? Whereas if you want to practice something, get better at something, you kind of have to believe that you're good at it, or at least you have the capacity to get good. 
third of all, like the ARs are better at being ARs than referees. So it's just a fact. They are better. So assistant referees are not only better than referees, they're also better than players at doing it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they may come across as arrogant when they're being questioned. And that arrogance is probably born from the fact that, but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's very important that we talk about the ARs because the ARs are a hundred percent part of the game also. They are very, very important. And that's why I mentioned them, you know, because oftentimes we talk about referees, we forget about the ARs. You I know? think it's a really worthwhile point because we do often mm-hmm. forget about them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one kind of justification for them being much better than referees uh, regarding uh, offside decisions is, is uh, this concept of attention again. So ARs tend to have much better external broad attention i.e they can take in lots of information at the same time so when the ball was played the crossover of runs between the attacker and the defender the Mm -hmm. speed that they're going at depth perception etc whereas officials need to switch between all four a lot more often right now that doesn't mean that the ar can't do those things it just means that the ar is possibly better Mm -hmm. at one type of attention Mm -hmm. and not as proficient at switching attentions than the referee is and Again, that's that's why referees, you know, they, they're going to believe they're the best because they demonstrate that they have really high levels of competency in this area. To go on your point about coaches being ARs, there's a great, if you go on the, onto YouTube, you can watch um, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville uh, in a documentary. Um, I think it's called Onside. Uh, I, I hope I have that right. But um, Jamie it, Carragher it, who? Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville, the mm, England, yeah, uh, yeah. ex-England fullback. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, um, and they, they met up with the British uh, Premier League referees mm-hmm. and they do lots of uh, like exercises, basically. And one of the things they get them to do is like an offside exercise. Mm-hmm. And they just get like most of them wrong. Mm-hmm. And like the referees are kind of jokingly like shouting at them, going, come on, you're useless. Yeah. Like, you know, and, <laughs> do, and do you what, do what like, you oh, see. <laughs> do what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that. But I, I, and I, one of the things that I heard that you said earlier that is very profound as far as the referees and, and the situation goes. It's about mm-hmm. you're, they're specifically trained to be referees yep. and, and ARs. Right. The ARs are never in the middle in training. They are always on the line. Yep. And all those diagonal runs that the referees have to make and the ARs have to be running and stopping and running and stopping while keeping their, their eyes on, on, on play is very, 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 very difficult and it takes special training. And I... I always ask ref- coaches to be very patient with referees. Yes, you have some referees who might behave a certain way, but that doesn't mean you must lump all referees and ARs in the same basket and decide this is how we are. Because we as coaches, we have our own nasty behavior on the sidelines too, and we, we shout things at the referees. When I say we, I don't, but I mean, I'm talking collectively now. You know, that, that, that these things happen. You know, so the referees are human beings and they, they must go home to a family afterwards and they have to go and think about their game. I think referees do more reflection on games than the coaches do on, the, on their games. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially in international tournament. When, when, when the referees are in international tournaments, they are, they are under the eyes of an of a, of a assessor who, who finds every single mistake with what they do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's really funny that, you know, one thing that referees often get criticised, particularly in Britain, is... Uh, they're not very accountable. Like, you know, they're not held to account for them. Mm-hmm. And that, it's the other way around. It's, they're, <laughs> they're probably the most accountable person on the pitch. They get every, uh, every Monday, they get called into St. George's Park, if you're a Premier League referee, and 
you have to watch your game mm -hmm. with an assessor mm -hmm. who then questions like not every decision but maybe you know 70% of the decisions you made. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Mm -hmm. And it's not, and often this is the point, it's, it's not a case of this was right or wrong. It's why did you do that? Like, what was your justification? What was your process? What were you thinking when you did that? And sometimes, of course, they make massive mistakes. Of course they do. But often it's, well, you know, this is what I saw and this is how I interpreted that specific action. And that's why I did what I did. So they're very accountable. Who holds the coach's performance? Or selection process, nobody, exactly, but himself. You see, so they must understand the process that referees go through, even even at the local level. I know in Jamaica, I can speak for Jamaica, because I know that they the referees meet just about every week, mm -hmm. and they discuss situations in games. Oftentimes, they invite coaches. They have invited me when I was coaching there to meetings, you know, and they try to influence us to bring bring the referees to clubs to talk to the players, to discuss, especially the offside rules, when it was the old one. I find that responsibility that is, that is um, held up for, court, for referees that is second to none by their own selves and their, own, their peers. So I tell you, this book, is, this book here, when I saw this, I said, I must have a discussion with you about it. I'm pleased that you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, no, I'm more delighted now that I'm talking to you because there are some <laughs> facts. Yeah, serious, Stuart. There are some facts coming out that I, I think that even some referees probably don't know about the numbers of calls that are made in a game and, and, and some of the research that you have done because they, they, are, they are not privy to some of those uh, research. Let's move on to know, do we really trust the referee? That's a general question. Is that a yes or some people do or some people don't? Yeah, so the gen generally we don't. It, it again, it, it sort of relates back to the cultural aspect. So it right. depends on maybe, you know, the location we are um, and, and what we've been exposed to. We Humans tend to internalize things. So we, we, you know, we have sort of like national stereotypes or national uh, cultures and norms. Mm -hmm. And we also value certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. So there's lots and lots of sociology there, which I possibly, you know, with hindsight, you know, we talked about reflecting performance. Maybe if there's one thing I could go back with the book, I probably would have spent a bit more time on the sociological side of it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Britain, there you seem to get a lot of kind of what some thinkers would call social capital. Mm -hmm. um, so what I mean by that is you'd kind of get kind of brownie points, if you like, or um, you'd get a lot of street credibility. That's probably the best term for like abusing a referee. Mm -hmm. It's seen as like a cool thing to do. And again, this stems from this kind of like class system of this middle class person kind of abusing the working class player um, and trying to keep them in check. Now, this that doesn't really apply anymore because referees come from all sorts of backgrounds nowadays and, and the game is so broad and multicultural and international. But deep down, do we really trust them? In Italy, um, they, they use the term ibastadi, and I don't think you need to be a fluent Italian speaker to understand what Iba Stardi means. Um, and and, and, a, and a, as an author called Tim Parks, who wrote a great book called A Season with Verona. And in the book, he talks about Iba Stardi and he says, apart from the referees, we don't know who they are. So referees are kind of the face of the faceless oppressor that is constantly trying to undermine us. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the bottom line is, no, we don't trust the referee. And one of the reasons we don't from a psychological point of view, which is the purpose of my book, I wanted to look at the psychological reasons behind these questions, mm -hmm. is uh, humans tend to suffer from something called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is where if we, if we hold an opinion, it's very hard for us to change our mind um, and often it's not logical, but we all do it. 
So, for example, if uh, I were to say to you, um, oh, have you noticed how all BMW cars are, are, are red? You might you might go, oh, well, she's right. All BMWs are red. And when you drive home today, you think, oh, wow, all I see are the red BMWs. That's because you're looking for them and you miss <laughs> the blue ones or the white ones and so on. So, yeah. that's right. so that's confirmation. Yeah, that's confirmation bias. Yes. So what we tend to do, and I see this, or I have this discussion. Now I've written the book. I, I go and watch my team play. And when I'm talking to my friends afterwards, the first thing, I've got one friend, the first thing he always does is blame the referee. Referee was crap. Referee did, I made that decision wrong. Referee favoured them. And I'll go, well, hang on, like, what? I, you know, I thought he, when he booked their player, that I didn't think that was a yellow card or, well, you know, I thought we got lucky on that decision and he's forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. So we kind of ignore all the times where our team benefits from a referee mistake mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we focus on the time where we were the losers right. of, the, of the decision. And that's easy Additionally, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And what we do as well is we can pair this up with another psychological theory called attribution theory where when things go our way, we tend to attribute it to uh, like skill or ability. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if if we get a, if our team gets awarded a penalty, we're like, oh, well, we were playing in their box a bit more because we were better. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the chances of us getting a penalty were higher because we had the ball in more dangerous areas more often than them. Whereas if it goes against us, we tend to blame external things that can change. So luck is the biggest one there. And, and an unlucky aspect of football might be a poor refereeing decision. And that can happen, by the way. So sometimes yeah. the referees do make mistakes, of course. And we kind of blame it on them. So we kind of think to ourselves, oh, well, the referee cost us that game today because they made that one bad decision. And although that bad decision might be quite key, like a penalty decision, for example, we're talking about one decision out of 250, and we're forgetting about all the other decisions that went our way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a great example of this was in, in the, there was a game last year, Tottenham, Tottenham Hotspur v Burnley in the Premier League. And um, Tottenham, I think Tottenham lost 2-1. And Tottenham's, the first goal that Tottenham conceded, mm-hmm. it should have been a goal kick to Tottenham. And the referee awarded a corner. Mm-hmm. And in live play, it looks like a corner. Yes. Like 100%. Yes. But on the replays, from a different angle, slow down, it comes off the Burnley player last. And lo and behold, Burnley score from the corner. Now, five minutes later, Tottenham equalise. And Tottenham get a throw in and they score kind of, they take a quick throw in and the Tottenham striker goes and scores. And the throw in was taken about 10 yards away from where the ball went out of play. And the referee just let it go. And in burning seat. 10 yards closer um, to goal? Yeah, yeah, 10 yards closer to the goal. Mm-hmm. The throw should have been taken. Yeah. And he didn't pull it, pull it back because there's a goal-scoring opportunity on now. Mm-hmm. And because Tottenham lost the game, a lot of Tottenham fans after the game were saying, oh, well, we lost because the referee gave a corner when it should have been a goal kick. Right, right. And, and what I was saying is... And they, did, they didn't see the opposite with, with them. Correct. It's like, yep, the referee made a mistake. Yes. However, he also made a mistake by not penalising that illegal throw Mm-hmm. Yes. But you're forgetting that. Yes. So I think that's why we don't trust the referee. Right. All right. There are two, two points. We have three left, you know, but I'll leave in, I'll leave in one for the last. But there, there are two, and I think they're sort of, a, they're interrelated. Do we neglect mental health of referees? And how mm-hmm. can a referee prepare um, psychologically for a game? Which is a mental thing too. So tell me what, you, what your, your research showed about the mental health of referees, if, if we neglect it. And why should we pay attention to that? Okay, so I think to to answer the question, do we neglect it? The answer is undoubtedly yes. Mm-hmm. There was a, a great sparsity of research on the mental health of referees. No one has really looked into this at all. Mm-hmm. And 
when we look at why, to answer the question of why might that be the case, I think, one, we don't really care. Um, we just expect referees to sort of turn up and do it. And certainly one thing over here uh, in, in, in the UK that I hear a lot is, but it's their job to take a bit of abuse. And therefore, if a referee was to say, well, you know, it kind of bothers me when I get criticised for 90 minutes every Saturday afternoon. It's like, but that's your job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a bit like being a policeman, I guess. You know, your job is just to deal with people abusing you. And I think it's wrong. And one of the reasons I think it's wrong is because there's a moral aspect to that, that it is wrong to kind of undermine someone so consistently when they're just doing their job and doing their job to the best of their ability. And then I also think that there's another reason why, and that's because that actually what we know is when people are enjoying things more and they're functioning um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a healthy way, they actually perform better. So if we want referees to perform better, to have more vigor, to have more energy, to dedicate more time, to put more effort in and to strategize, I reflect and think about performance, they need to be mentally healthy. So that sort of leads on to this, the next part of that question, which is how can a referee prepare for a game? Mm-hmm. And there's actually a, a few things to recommend. So I, I, I adapt a model um, from, from a researcher called Roy Samuel to discuss this. And, and, and Samuel looked at a model to improve referees' performance psychologically for elite referees. And I adapted it to include some things that I personally believe in, but also to affect all referees at all levels. Um, the model is is not complicated, but there's too many aspects to go through now. But mm-hmm. maybe some highlights might be to actually think about um, rational thinking. So rational thinking is where the beliefs that we hold actually help serve our goal. So, for example, if we hold the belief, if our goal, sorry, as a referee is to make as many decisions right as possible, if we have the belief that everyone must like me, we're probably not going to make uh, to be consistent and to make decisions right because by having that belief that everyone must like you, you're probably going to make some decisions based on the social payoff of that decision, i.e. I'll get a round of applause or people won't criticise me mm-hmm. rather than it being the right decision. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one thing I actually emphasise in the book is maybe practice some rational thinking. I outline some exercises that people, real referees, predominantly can do to do that. Mm-hmm. I also talk about things like mental simulation and preparation um, before the game. So how can a referee actually adapt before the game? So a great piece of research uh, that I found particularly interesting was that assistant referees tend to make more mistakes in offside decisions in the first 15 minutes of the game. And their 15-minute kind of period of the game where they make the most accurate decisions tends to be the last 15 minutes. And that really surprised me because I would have thought, you know, as a player, the last 15 minutes were kind of hard because you're really tired. And I would have assumed it'd be the same for referees. But actually, it's because after 75 minutes, they're very, very attuned to the game their depth perception is kind of logged in. They're, they're adjusted to the speed of the players and the, and the bounce of the ball and the flow of the pitch and the surrounding sounds and atmosphere and things like that. And so one thing I noticed was that ARs very rarely warm up at the side of the pitch and actually very rarely kind of watch video clips or uh, simulate offside situations in their warm-up. They just do a physical warm-up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, while I'm not saying they shouldn't do that, it's, you know, warm-up relevant to your skills. So I'm sure as a coach, one thing that really bothered mm-hmm. me when I was coaching football was players that just go for a jog around the pitch. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm like, you're not going to do that in the game. So do like game specific warm ups and, and ARs and referees are the same. They should be doing as much game specific stuff as possible. Interesting. And, and finally, Interesting point. Interesting yeah. point. Continue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I guess finally, you know, this morning is, you know, post match assessment and evaluation and, and how they think about their decisions. You know, don't beat yourself up about the decisions. Reflect on it. Think about why you did something. And, uh, and, and to practice some of the psychological skills in-game that I recommend, such as self-talk. So I interview some high-level uh, ex-referees and current referees in the book, and a lot of them will use self-talk. So, for example, they'll split the game up into five-minute blocks. Mm -hmm. So rather than refere refereeing a half of football over 45 minutes, what that does is if you think about it in 45 minutes, if you make a, a mistake in the third minute of the game, you might be thinking about that in the 13th or the 20th minute, and that's not going to help your, your your performance at all. Like a player making a mistake, as a coach, you want them to forget about it and move on, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. It's the same, oh, yeah, yeah, it's so the same for referees. You, you want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to, yeah. And it's your job to try and help them, but they don't yes. always do it, right? Yes. So I just recommend some things that referees can do, such as self-talk, uh, such as imagery training, uh, and then positive self-talk as, as well to help change there's something called like challenge and state threat so some referees might see certain players uh, as a threat mm -hmm. so oh this player's trying to undermine me and that makes me feel bad and therefore scared might be the wrong word but it, it damages our motivation mm -hmm. whereas you know we can change that perception to right okay so the number eight that keeps arguing with me you know, this is going to be a challenge today. Let's see if I can handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's a much healthier approach for a referee to take and with proven outcomes as well. Yes. Well, now we have done all of the questions. We have looked at all the areas of the, 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 your questions and we have covered them in a, you have covered them in a very eloquent way. The big question is, after hearing all of this, why would anyone want to be a referee? <laughs> So, okay, so you, you yeah, did the research, you know, I'm just coming up with the question. You did the research. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. you, want, you want the answer? Yeah. The answer is related to you too, because you decided to become a referee. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Here, here it is. I'll tell you why it is. Yes. The, the simple answer is a love of the game. Right, beautiful. They, they love the game. They, uh, referees... They, they adore football. They, they want to help football. They want people to have the opportunity to play football and they want to be involved in football. And they believe that the skills they have will help the game. And that's why they become a referee. Excellent way to end. My waiting with bated breath paid off because everything that is said and everything, the discussion here is so valuable to referees or potential referees and coaches and players. Because you said one thing towards the end, I, I never want to stop you, but I go back to it where you say referees being happy will perform better. I'm not verbatim, no, but it is very important, as I say, if you're in an environment that you are well-received and you feel comfortable you mm -hmm. will, and you're enjoying what you're doing, it will pay off. And this is why I encourage sometimes, I say to my players, go out and enjoy your game. Just go out and enjoy your game because we all make mistakes. Right? We all make mistakes. Don't take it out on the referees. Oftentimes, the coach and the player's behavior influence the spectators. Yeah, absolutely. So, right? So the coaches have a responsibility to make sure their players respect the referees. And mm -hmm. by them not reacting to certain way, a certain way to cause, the, the crowd will not be a part of the whole you know, um, accusation and talking about the referees. I have a, a, a final question, though. What do you think the VR has on the referee's performance? Though? 
And this, maybe I'll ask the conversation. Give me a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I said at the beginning, the most common question I get is, um, why do a book about referees? Mm-hmm. That's changed to what are your thoughts on VAR? Um, so, yeah, I've actually written a few pieces about VAR. Um, okay, first of all, this is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. So my personal opinion is that VAR could be very, very good. I think it could be very, very good because obviously a referee cannot be expected to see everything. And second of all, like like players, referees can make a mistake. And while a player makes a mistake, we acknowledge they only kind of have one crack at it. Mm-hmm. We want the referees to get it right. And so if we can help them, you know, maybe see something again, then that might help matters. So I think it has potentially be really, really good. The example I always use is like the Zidane headbutt in the World Cup final. Mm-hmm. There's no way that a referee will see that because it's off the ball games going on somewhere else in the field Mm -hmm. and yet we cannot allow an action such as that go unpunished right so if if video assistant refereeing can help identify things like that then it can only be good for the game Uh, however i think particularly in the premier league and i can't speak too much about elsewhere Mm -hmm. um, because i don't a have the personal kind of experience of it and b it is done differently in fifa and uefa competitions than it is in the premier league i think it's implemented horribly Mm-hmm. Um, so I think by not, first of all, it should always be the referee's decision by not allowing the referee to see the pitch side monitor, which they're not allowing referees in the Premier League to do at the moment is okay. wrong. Okay. Um, the re the psychological reason for that. And again, I always like to look at it, not just from my opinion and go, right. So what framework can help me kind of answer this question is a, a really nice, uh, theory called self-determination theory and self-determination theory states that for people to function and to perform to the best of their ability, mm-hmm. they need three areas. And one of those is autonomy. So they need to feel like they're in control. Right. One of them is competence. i.e., they need to feel that they're good at it. And the other one is relatedness. So they need to be able to discuss things with people who are kind of like-minded. So for example, with relatedness, you spoke about your coaching podcast. Mm-hmm. So by having a group of people, uh, having like an online meeting and talking about coaching, they're going to feel related to other coaches. They're going to enjoy that. They're going to mm-hmm. function better as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Autonomy might come from a coach feeling that they are in control. So what they decide to do is up to them. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, autonomy, uh, related, oh, competence, i.e. they feel they're good at it. Mm-hmm. Now, VAR, by if, if you're a referee, Vin, and, and I'm your assistant, and I come over on a little earpiece to you, and I say, Vin, you've made a mistake there. You need to go back, and you need to send off the red number 10. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you go and do that. One, that's not autonomy. That's, I'm not promoting autonomy because I'm telling you what to do, and you don't have a choice. Yes. Yeah. Number two, I'm not promoting relatedness because there's no discussion. I'm just telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. And number three, you're probably not going to feel very, very competent after that because I've just told you you've made a mistake. Right, right, right. right so, right. The, yeah, from a psychological perspective, the way that UEFA do VAR is much better, which is, Vin, we think you may have missed something. Can you go and look at it from the pitch side monitor mm-hmm. and then make a decision? Okay, 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 okay. See the difference? Yes, yeah, so a lot of difference. That is your part yeah. of the decision making. Correct. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, in the book, I can't talk about VAR because it was published a month before it came out. <laughs> so, before VAR was used. <laughs> so, I'm sure there's going to be a revised chapter at some point. Yeah. Well, it was an absolute pleasure having this minded. conversation with you. I'm very, very touched to that and I'm very pleased that you enjoyed it. I really did. All right. So, thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. And I hope we can collaborate again soon. It'd be my pleasure. I'd love to. All right. Take care. 
What can I say, coaches? I can only encourage you to share this episode with your colleagues, players, and referees. I hope that Stuart's research and findings has in some way influenced your views on refereeing. Stuart's book, Blowing the Whistle, is a must-have. Thanks for listening. If you found value in the show, please share with your friends. We'd love to hear your views. So if you haven't already done so, please like, subscribe, and leave a review. Make sure to visit our website at onthesideline.net where you can access coaching sessions and more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.